Hey guys, if you want updates on our latest episodes, then be sure to subscribe to the Film Colossus podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, if you'd like to support the show and hear episodes ad-free, then subscribe to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash filmcolossus. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. My name is Chris Lambert. And my name is Travis Bean. And on today's episode, we pick apart what is considered one of the most enigmatic movies of all time, Mulholland Drive. Our discussion breaks this classic film down into simple terms, revealing the humanistic underbelly of David Lynch's cautionary tale about Hollywood and fantasy. What's an appropriate... Oh, I know what an appropriate beginning is. Okay, this is part of the beginning, though. This is part of the beginning. I know that. I know that. Okay. I know that. So this is the this is the best... This is the best embodiment of the movie. Ready? Okay. Silencio. <laughs> I don't think that That's much it. time passes before she says silencio. <laughs> oh, well, get out your stopwatch, buddy, because and, and there's a glowing a-, a glowing reening going on, like there's ambiance. It's not just dead silence. <laughs> no, but uh, audio-wise, audio-wise all right i know i'll I'll insert some sounds how about that maybe i should have recorded myself doing an intro before and then played the recording of me doing an intro as the intro maybe or you should have came out and been like no i banda ah that would have been better yeah if i just got out the screenplay and read his lines yeah and then like you're like you think there's two guys sitting in chairs doing a podcast, but there aren't. It's a recording. <laughs> right? Right? Which is kind this of is, true. It's true. You're not listening to this live. Yeah, you're not looking at me right now, are you? That would be terrifying. Yeah. Please let me know if you are. Because <laughs> I want to know how All right. you're doing it. All right. All right. Mulholland Drive. Mulholland Drive. Mulholland Drive. This was your pick. Yep. Are you satisfied with your pick? <laughs> yeah, it was all right. <laughs> this movie's okay. Yeah, just eh, up up there for you, a little up Maybe there. Maybe tries you. a little bit too hard sometimes, but you know, I I give it a pass for for its effort. <laughs> if anybody doesn't know, this is one of Travis's favorite movies of all time. Absolutely, this is um, this is how I fell in love with David Lynch. I don't even know when I would have first seen it. I imagine. I'm, it was definitely part of my like like okay I'm getting into movies like what movies do I need to watch like it was part of those stages probably within the first three or four years I was watching movies and my guess is this came on the latter end of that um, when I had finally started my old blog Cinema Beans it's still up you can still go read my shitty reviews that I wrote way back when and um 
I remember writing about Mulholland Drive and like trying to make sense of it and like it was this combination of um like I really liked it for its weirdness but like think maybe the message doesn't hit hard enough or like I'm wondering like why people love it so much and ever since then it's just been a slow steady understanding of both the movie and Lynch as a filmmaker and as I've absorbed his output and understood his movies, I get at least how I understand them. Cause he famously doesn't want anyone to understand his movies. Almost. <laughs> he like never <laughs> answers questions about the deeper meaning of his movies. So it's like purely up to, to interpretation. But I guess what I've learned over the years is like, I think his movies are a lot more simple than meets the eye. Like a lot of people are really obsessed with the details in a David Lynch movie. And I have found that the movies are just much easier to take in and understand if I, purely look at them from an emotional standpoint and think about the characters and what they're going through and concern myself less with like plot details and more of like seeing the the human qualities of what's happening on screen. I've just found myself really endeared to these movies over the year and Mulholland Drive has just stood above the rest in that way. Like Inland Empire, for instance, Chris, a a movie I know you love. Um, (laughs) it's, uh, (laughs) It's a movie like I, I recognize all the things it does well, but I can't love it like I love Mulholland Drive. Mulholland Drive just does something so heavy and honest with its main character in a way that I it, it's just become an important part of my life in that way over the years. Like it's I see myself in the movie in a lot of ways. Like I look past the weirdest and just see like what this person's going through. Um, so yeah, just um, I don't know how many times I've seen it at this point. Probably at least 10 i saw it once in a theater which was really cool and nice um, back when they were doing the 4k restoration at first and yeah it's just a movie that's been a constant in my life ever since and i've loved it more and more every time i've watched it including today for this podcast (laughs) um i first saw it i had gone to sundance in 2013 it was my first time going to sundance and my friend Laura came with me and she's from Australia and I ended up flying back to Australia and crashing with her at her parents' house for like three weeks. Oh, nice. And I feel like I don't remember like, this because I was with you then. It was the year before we went. You oh, and I, oh, I went for the first time in 2014. Got it. Um, So 2013, yeah, I just you know, went to Sundance flew back to Australia and I'd lived in Australia. I'd studied abroad there and after college moved back there for a year. So it was kind of like a, a return uh, after a couple years and getting to catch up with some people and see some friends. And it was just after my mom had passed. So mm-hmm. there was like a lot of decompressing that was going on. And I, Laura and I talk about movies all the time and she brought up Mulholland Drive and I was like, no, I've never... I've never seen it. She's like, Chris, you've never seen, I can't do her Australian accent, but you've never seen Mulholland Drive. You've never seen Mulholland Drive and made this like big deal about me not <laughs> seeing Mulholland Drive. So we watched it on like a little <laughs> dumb TV in her room. Yeah. And she's like in her bed. I'm on the air mattress on the ground and we're just watching <laughs> like a two this and a half movie. hour movie. Yeah, and I was captivated the whole time. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, by I was just like, wow, this is not an ideal way to view this movie, but wow. <laughs> uh, and it ended, and we spent like 
hours talking about it, which oh, wow. was fun. And then uh, I think it was because at the time I knew you loved Magnolia, but I think it was shortly after that um, in that 20, like 13, 2014 period that Mulholland Drive, like for a time, rose up to your like top movie ever. Um, um, yeah, it's always been one of those movies for me, you know, like like there are five movies. I would say there are probably like I don't know why I'm getting so specific. Um, but when I look at my rankings, like there really are seven movies that are, feel like essential pieces of my puzzle. And like, this is definitely one of them. <laughs> and so I, I remember having some talks with you about it and it was very cool to have that conversation. Cause the insight you were providing into it and just like the idea of like the Hollywood dream and how he explores it. And that's something over the last few years, with our site and explaining movies how we do there's so many movies about like the hollywood dream totally this topic exactly yeah not being what you thought it would and it's not like this started it was sunset boulevard was kind of the one of the kickoff points for that right or like a very seminal movie for that but there have been so many over the years that are just like that exact topic but handled in different (laughs) styles and ways la la land is the same exact thing babylon is actually the same exact thing like damien chazelle made the same movie but just went about it in different ways um so mulholland drive as i've discovered more of that genre has continued to be one that i'm just like could they just all be mulholland drive yeah right um terms of how they go about it so i i had fond memories of it this was only my second time watching it really yeah oh wow um i remember when you wrote the movie guide for it or the Mm -hmm. explanation for it like i think that was at a time where we were like tag teaming a little bit more Mm -hmm. like doing some like check-ins with each other about it so i remember going back and watching like the last 20 minutes again mm-hmm. but i actually had forgotten a lot of it so You've there were entire like everything else oh, like oh yeah th- there were whole stretches i because if from my mind like most of the movie was like the two women right it was uh betty and rita <laughs> for the most part and it's like oh no for a lot of the movie is like not them whatsoever. I forgot that uh, Justin Thoreau had such a, a big part uh-huh. in it, and he had like a whole subplot that had all these things. <laughs> a very interesting and weird subplot. Yeah, which still ties back to the Hollywood dream oh, totally. being like shitty. And you get some of the underworld elements. That was what was jumping out to me too. Was you know people oh the Kate will react. It. Uh, oh, sorry, like. <laughs> No, no. <laughs> but what a movie. I didn't see um, any vampires in... for the record, but keep going. <laughs> what about the vampire will- werewolf hybrid? The, oh, the lichen. Oh, the, the, lichen. the lichen vampire hybrid, of course. Yeah, yeah, of course. Of Don't course. they have a name for that uh, in the movies? Yeah, isn't that the second one? Underworld yeah. Evolution? It's it's always part of the movies, but you fu- you finally see one, I think, in Evolution. Because I think the first one is just you have the vampires and you have the lichen, but in the second one, there's the guy yeah. who is both vampire and lichen. Exactly, and it's very interesting. <laughs> uh, but the I actually under, like that the under, 
okay, move on. The, you, of course, of course you do. The underworld <laughs> element of Hollywood, which in the third hour of Babylon, I feel like it was something that people in the third hour of Babylon were like, why do we have this Tobey Maguire stuff? Why do they go into like a weird nightclub? <laughs> I forgot and, that Tobey Maguire was in that movie. Is that supposed to get at the seedy aspect of Hollywood that's part of the history of Hollywood? That it's not just like lights, camera, see it, uh, lights, camera, action. Yeah. It's there's actually been like mob elements, these ugly elements. It's not just what you see on the surface, but there's some deeper, uglier things. Hmm. And that's kind of what you're getting from Justin Thoreau's arc here is that filmmaking isn't just the director has a vision and he in the studio might butt heads. It's like, you do have some of the uglier like components that come into cinema that get people business. some roles that they shouldn't have. Yeah, the business is maybe a, a lot more mobstery than we may think. And you could take that literally as that there is this like seedy underworld that has an influence on film, but you could also just view it as like Lynch talking about the studios as if they're like mafia people yeah. uh, and see it as a little more symbolic. But I, I think it still gets at a relevant idea to the movie. So I was I was pretty uh, surprised by how much I had forgotten about it. I um, mean, the first when you come out of the dream and you're just with Diane, that's about 30 minutes of the movie. <laughs> yeah. So you watch two hours of something that didn't happen. Yeah, it was just impressionism or her wishes of how things could have gone, which it's what an, an elaborate things. Yeah. What an elaborate uh, fantasy. I think that's was my biggest takeaway from this viewing was um, it. And why I think this movie really does reward repeat viewings. Like it did make me think of what you were saying about the hateful eight and how, like once you know what the twist is in the hateful eight, it doesn't, add anything necessarily and it doesn't enrich the viewing experience on repeat watchings because like it doesn't necessarily add tension to anything whereas in Maholan Drive it really builds the tension that you know none of this is real and you're starting to dig into why Diane is manipulating certain people or certain situations in a certain way and I just think the more and more times I watch this movie the more insight I get into her mind and how she is and how much she bought into the Hollywood dream or into just the bigger dream of like what her life could have been. Um, I just find that like, like for instance, you know, um, like she's trying out for a movie in her dream and it starts with her doing lines with Rita and they're doing it and she's, her acting is like bad and theatrical and they laugh at how silly the scene is, which is honestly like one of my favorite parts of the movie. Like such a, <laughs> such just like an honest moment where you just like stop and laugh. Like this is fucking stupid. Um, but then like, so you have that base layer and then you go into the actual audition and suddenly she's doing really well and it feels really real and honest, except it's yeah. not real. Like, even in this dream fantasy, this moment isn't real. It's just an audition. It's just pretend. Um, and then I feel like the energy of that scene is then mimicked when she finally kisses Rita. And they have this moment where they connect. 
and it feels so real just like that scene except this time it's real like she's actually kissing her except it's not real <laughs> it's still the dream like it, it the layers keep building and keep showing just how far her delusion is gone and like it isn't necessarily just a hollywood dream um I, there's this documentary i've always wanted to watch i'll probably watch it soon because i've been thinking about it nonstop. but i think it's called lynch oz or something like that and it's just about david lynch's obsession with the wizard of oz and it's this movie he always talks about and it, it's such a good insight into his filmography i think because his movies are constantly about uh people's perception of reality and the reality they'd like to live in um almost every one of his movies has done this <laughs> to an almost comical degree. Um, but then Maholan Drive and Inland Empire took it a step further into the actual realm of movies, making the movie you're watching very meta. It was kind of a culmination of his exploration of this topic. And But that's what I really love about Maholan Drive is that thinking about it in terms of The Wizard of Oz and like especially thinking about it in terms of all the movies you mentioned and how they feel kind of flat compared to something like Mulholland Drive is because Mulholland Drive just isn't about a Hollywood dream. It's about somebody's detachment from the world. It's about, it's more than just the Hollywood dream that was sold to her. It was a dream that was sold to her, like a life she could live an ideal life and she's not achieving it. And anybody can relate to that. Like how difficult that is to be realizing like, I'm not living the life I thought I was going to be living and how hard that is to deal with. And so those layers of, you know, the acting and like her trying to like create this life that isn't real all throughout the first four fifths of the movie, like that's such a bold and incredible move um, that, as I say, like I've just realized over time, like it is about the Hollywood dream, but like it's so much more than that. Like it's so incredible how much deeper it goes. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, because as Hollywood dies as it is, as you're saying, it's just about somebody with a dream and getting at the crushing aspects of it. It's almost like the ethereal aspect of the film that makes it... Uh, confusing for people and hard to penetrate also is what gives it a little more universality right. than what you get from Babylon <laughs> where Babylon's so specific and La La Land transcends just a little bit because it's so grounded in the the romance aspect right. that the movie feels more universal because so many people relate to having like a crush on somebody or having this like almost relationship that never came to pass 
and having that like what could have been so because it defamiliarizes the hollywood dream and the complications of the hollywood dream through a more universal romance story Mm -hmm. that's made that movie so incredibly popular (laughs) but mulholland drive has this kind of like gut punch aspect that i think can surprise a lot of people because even if they didn't understand all the specifics about what was happening and why it was happening you get the weight of the contrast between how she thought her life could go and the vision that she had for her life and what she hoped for her life versus what her life actually is and some of the like whiplash that you get from trying to catch up with the revelation of that like who is it she's actually diane this is her life she's kind of angry and overwhelmed and overworked and bitter and jeez kind of embodies the feeling that we all have when it comes to thinking about we're just you know young and bright-eyed in like high school with dreams of tomorrow and now we're mid-30s or older or late 20s and like where has my where's the time gone how did i get here did i have these big dreams and even if you're like satisfied you still think back to maybe some of the dreams where you hoped you would be or could be i think most people feel behind the curve even if they feel like they're in a good spot and the movie captures all of that so well and in such a like a visceral way rather than a narrative told to you way yeah right that it's a very powerful experience and i think one that benefits from the repeat viewings and as people you know succeed in life or feel more behind the curve in life it's one that they can come back to and either view with relief or (laughs) with even more of a sense of existential dread yeah it's it's a great movie too for repeat viewings just in terms of like if you're a sleuth viewer, you know, like I wouldn't even yeah. consider myself one of those kinds of people. I'm more just looking at like characters and like a story told well. But I, because I've seen Mulholland Drive so many times, and because I know all the things people are obsessed with, I have become a little obsessed with like knowing all the little details. Um, obviously, I've written about it in the explanation, uh, which, by the way, is maybe the only explanation, like not the only, but the one I cared most about, like being number one on Google. <laughs> I really want that to happen. And I'm like sometimes theorizing like, you know, what ways can I do? Like what backlinks can I create? Anyway, go read it. Um, but I, oh, there are a few things that like I started to notice that are really cool. Uh, well, well, I guess famously, we should note that David Lynch gave out 10 clues to unlocking the movie which was like a weird moment for him because he never does stuff like that. But I guess he was really pressed to do it because people were so confused by his movie back when it came out, which is still funny to me to this day. Like I know some of it's confusing and there are a lot of details to examine, but like it's not exactly confusing. um, Once you just realize that everything's a dream and then suddenly you're not in the dream. But anyway, he, he gave all these clues and some of the clues are insightful to how you could start to like theorize a few things that are happening like he tells you to pay attention to the telephone in diane's room and i think that's cool because in the dream that diane's having she imagines 
the cast castigliani what are their names something like that uh the mob boss brothers when they are calling each other and like you know saying like you need to kill the girl the last call is to diane's phone which is really weird um and then and in my mind that is just like it, it feels like the dream kind of trying to reach through to diane in real life or like diane knows deep down that none of this is real and none of this is fulfilling because you're chasing something that isn't part of your life. So you need to like, you need to take better care of yourself. You need to move on and all that. Like she knows that deep down and, and is trying to contact herself through the phone or something like that. Um, and I think that all gets at the end of the movie or at the end of the dream sequence when she's in the, the theater and she's watching the show and she's realizing that none of it's happening and she's starting to convulse and she finds the blue key that's going to take her back. There's just this, there's a sense that the dream is trying to like shake her awake <laughs> and tell her to like, you know, wake up, like see what life is really like. Um, it's just so cool that all these little things lend insight into those potential avenues. And, and none of it's just plot. That's what I like about it. It's not just like know the plot better and know the secrets better. Like it's actually insight into her character and what she's going through and how destructive the situation has become and all that. I, I just love that the details all seem humanistic to me in that way. Humanistic is a, is a good word for it because there is such a, an emotional quality to everything that's happening. And yeah, that tension of the dream trying to end and her not wanting it to end because she doesn't want to face the reality of what she did and what the blue key actually represents but that guilty conscious aspect of it or the inability to hold on to the dream hmm. because reality is just constantly there yeah <laughs> becomes too much uh it's really and especially like the idea that the guilt is embodied by or personified by what do they call the the parking lot man park oh the 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 man the monster behind the dumpster i think yeah the dumpster monster yeah. do we have like a a name for the dumpster monster um i think that is the credit i i've seen i've seen something about this before about what this it's actually a woman who plays it but i i believe oh. the character's name is the man behind the dumpster but a woman plays it so i've i've heard monster i've heard man behind the dumpster something like that <laughs> on wikipedia it's just bum really okay yeah bonnie Ahrens, who actually also plays the uh the nun in uh oh. the nun and the nun too no shit and the conjuring oh she's great and Annabelle? Man, and she's in Drag Me to Hell? Oh, man, I'm going to watch this woman's discography. <laughs> wow, she's Jim got a Drive, Princess Diaries, and Shallow Howl in the same year. What a... That's <laughs> crazy. What a crazy-ass year. Yeah, and but also a craziest year best, for her life. The best movie of those three is Shallow Howl, of course. Of course, yeah. That's a fairly brothers movie, so don't shit on it. I hate that movie so much. Oh, really? Okay. I mean, I haven't yeah. seen it in a while. I just remember it being on HBO back in the day, and it kept being on before things that I'd want to watch, so I'd keep catching <laughs> portions of it. 
being like this is just such an insane movie like an insane movie the ending is just outrageous yeah i i'd have to watch it again like i said but i feel like i've just always had a soft spot for jack black maybe because of high fidelity which is such an important movie in my life um but I've always really liked him, and my family actually we all dressed up as Jack Black characters for Halloween. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I'm a fan of Shallow Hal. Well, yeah. I mean, you're a you're a Jack Black man. Yeah, look at me. Well, don't if <laughs> you are black. looking at me. By the way, please let me know how you're doing it. I <laughs> uh, so the bum, uh, the yeah. nun, the nun bum, uh. It's so terrifying, but you could also see like that also being this embodiment of guilt or reality or the weights of everything that she's faced and having that component, especially like I love the end and how surreal it gets with the the old people coming into the house. Like the whole last 30 minutes is so. okay. my reaction this time was. I found the the first hour and a half maybe a little less compelling than mm-hmm. I had historically. Um, it had some like good shots, some funny moments. It actually, in a lot of ways, felt more like a blueprint for how a lot of modern films and like TV are. Uh-huh. Um, I was. It felt almost like its DNA had has like spread out into a lot of very modern things, especially. We've been catching up on the show Fargo, which I kind of hate, but I feel like Fargo is in some ways doing like a weird, like poor man's version of both like Coen Brothers and Mulholland Drive, not in terms of like plots, Mm -hmm. but just in terms of like some of the style and the humor. Like I forgot how funny Mulholland Drive was, like it was cracking me up at so many scenes, but then the, the really like high points of the film like betty's audition is yeah. just such a crazy scene it's yeah, it like such an field. amazing yeah like i love that scene so much and then the the assassin trying to get the little black book is also just <laughs> like a hilarious yeah hilarious uh sequence that's classic that's... lynch humor yeah it's just like each thing going wrong <laughs> yeah. when he did like an initial good job in quotes. Um, so there's a lot of like very fascinating things, but the last 30 minutes when you get the change in Naomi Watts's character and being, it's so incredible to me. Like the job she does in this movie is such uh, like a masterwork of acting I'm blown away by it every single time. This yeah. was also one of her first American films, wasn't it? Was it not her first one? It was her first one, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. It's nuts. I still feel like we have it. What's her best work? Mahondra. <laughs> that's that's fair. I love her in King Kong, too. Well, she's in the ring. Um yeah, which yeah. Twenty one grams, that's like heavy acting. I haven't seen twenty one grams. I heard Huckabees, she has like she has a little bit of life. Like she's done some good Oh yeah, King Kong, of course. Yeah, I love her in King Kong. Yeah, great stuff. I love King Kong. 
Um, she's good in Eastern Promises as well. She's kind of like a broken person in that. Yeah, I remember that. I, it's just she's so that twist from being so bubbly and bright eyed to so crushed and put upon and yeah. worn is awesome. But when we finally get to the little old people <laughs> like chasing her through mm-hmm. as kind of this embodiment of the hopes and potential and like how much they were welcoming her to Hollywood and wishing her the best of luck and like rooting for her. It's like, you can almost see them as embodying all of the potential that she felt for the place. And they're chasing her right into the, the scary dumpster bum who is at like all the guilt and pain and like dirty, like uh, the worst parts of everything that have happened and like drives her to death it's such a great like freudian who is freud's other <laughs> guy i always forget who that did guy. the uh his oh the person that follows you <laughs> uh who he tutored trained um the guy who, who did me? the archetypes yeah looking at you through the window i was gonna say you. yeah are there people outside my home uh, when you have somebody that you train in your stead, apprentice, it was his apprentice. Wait, um, who follows me? I need to know the answer to this question. <laughs> uh, but he did Twitter? the psychological, he did the Jungian, Carl Jung. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. He does follow that's, me. That's, <laughs> I just meant like the idea of somebody that follows like in your footsteps oh. after you finish something, <laughs> not like you wow. literally. I deeply misread what you were saying. Keep going. Yeah, I thought you were doing a bit, and then I was like, uh, well, "No, no, yeah." I thought you were uh, doing a bit. In a, so, an apprentice—that's what I meant. Got it. The the apprentice who follows in your footsteps. Carl Jung did the the Jungian archetypes. Got him. So it feels very like Freudian, Jungian, and having these figures like chase her down, and then having the uh this embodiment of the worst parts of her. It's so good. It's like such a climactic ending to me. Yeah. I, again, I, you know, I've, I've written about the ending and feel like I understand it pretty well, but I, I felt like I felt the heaviness of it so much more this time and how, yeah, the, the old people kind of chase her through their home. Actually, in that moment when the, the, the old people are crawling under the door, uh, which is just one of the best moments in this movie <laughs> these little old tiny old people cackling and like their tiny little voices like <laughs> like so good um <laughs> but as they're crawling in there are lights flashing all around and there's a knock at uh diane's door and i had never thought about this before and i wondered if you had thought this that the police are outside her home in that moment um oh and and that they're like coming to get her and she kind of has this moment of like she's you know she's feeling guilty for what she did but she's also like gonna go to jail for it so she just kills herself yeah i mean the her ex did mention the detective wanted to see her oh so the police being outside the door the detective at least being outside the door and knocking does feel like that sense of like coming due yeah like you're about to get caught and then she ends up becoming the woman in the bed that they found in her dream 
Yeah. But it really adds to the intensity of the moment because, like, there are just, like, lights kind of flickering before that. But then once the old people grow to normal size and are chasing around the hall and she's screaming, like, the lights are flashing like crazy and it becomes very surreal and detached. Um, and then it, it's cool because it, you you can see the scene kind of slowly dipping further and further away from, like, who Diane was. It, it, the ending basically becomes like a eulogy for her and she goes to the bed and, and shoots herself and the smoke rises up like all of a sudden yeah. we're like being lifted into like somewhere else and the first place we go is to the man behind the dumpster who is holding the blue box and we kind of go into him and that which goes into a shot of just their uh diane i guess at this point it's it's betty and rita because suddenly we're we're seeing Rita with the blonde hair, so we know we're looking at the dream versions of them. And it's just these shots of them all lit up with LA in the background. It's almost like they're ghosts resting there and like but they're still smiling, which to me, like that's how I'm reading the ending now, is the end kind of dips further and further away from reality slowly. So like starts with the old people, then goes to the man who like brings you into the dream world who lets you in and out he's bringing you back in and then we're seeing these two women and remembering them in a way and looking at them and saying like oh we lost these people but it's cool because it's it's not just that it 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 becomes suddenly a eulogy for betty or or it becomes like maybe more of what it is is diane is gone and like all that's left is this version of her that she wished she could be um, it, in a way, it becomes a eulogy for, like, the dream itself and, like, all the promise it represented but was never yeah. going to give you. It's it's becomes a visualization of the realization of it's all a lie. <laughs> that you can't just depend on, like, this dream that's been sold to, sold to you. You have to build a life. Like, you have to find your own fulfillment and all that. Ending finally with the woman who's in the theater and she says, Silencio. And, like, literally end like that's it no more needs to be said about this like it's done um i just think it's hard to put into words. i mean you hear me struggling to put in the words here and i've seen it a million times and explained on the site but it's it's the way the the ending navigates that situation and and reflects on diane's life and what it had become it's visually i just think it's so incredible they they pulled that off yeah, I really love I think what's what you're getting at, it becomes very clear in including the shot of Los Angeles mm-hmm. under the like ethereal ghostly image of Betty and Rita, because that seems to imply that the positivity or the hope that she had for this life, everything that that life could have been um was tied to the city of los angeles and the promise that los angeles offers Mm. it wasn't just betty's dream it's the dream of or diane's dream of what her life could have been it's this dream that the city itself promises people and it's a dream that the city itself kind of destroys and takes away so that's very like a powerful statement to make and does have that eulogy aspect of that that weight of what could have been and really leaving you with that sense of loss and tragedy and sadness that's tied to the unrealized dream. Yeah. 
but then also there is that degree of hope that you don't have to be Diane, right? You mm-hmm. can hopefully still find a way to achieve something, do something. The The final image of the woman saying silencio is fascinating too because it does tie back to that whole performance and what does that yeah. performance entail in terms of the artifice of everything and is it about the artifice of Hollywood? Is it about the artifice of the world that Diane is in? And is it just a cool thing to go back to? Does it have commentary about Hollywood as a whole, Los Angeles as a whole, or is it just putting a a final like f- dropping of the curtain on this story and that it's just silence now? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Oh, man, you, you're making me think about the whole scene <clears throat> it, at the theater when the guy's like, no, I banda, you know, and he's, and he's describing, he, he's, it's it's really like an art piece it must have been some art piece that david lynch just wanted to do and he's like i'll put it in my movie um but the idea that like this guy starts by saying like everything you're gonna see in here isn't real like it's just a recording and he does it over and over and over he's like that's not a clarinet that's not a trumpet that's not a trombone and like and then literally disappears from the screen before the woman comes out and sings the song and it's just such an incredibly paced scene because the whole time you're never really questioning if any of this stuff is happening like you know it's a recording because the guy constantly says it but when this woman comes out and scene you i could see someone ostensibly like forgetting that's the case and just sort of being wrapped up in what she's doing and seeing just like rita and betty are in that moment like they're just crying at like the song she's performing until suddenly you realize she's not really seeing it. Like so much time goes by that maybe you forget. And then all of a sudden the, the point of everything comes roaring back. It's just such an incredible moment, A, as a viewer to like realize that and like, oh, that's pretty cool. But also just thinking about in terms of what it means for Diane, who's having that dream and this idea that the dream is trying to like console her, reach out to her, make her realize these sorts of things and like what the metaphor really is um but in the end it doesn't matter like she's not able to overcome any of it it's just incredible to rewatch scenes like that and realize like all that is at stake and like what's actually going to happen in the movie and everything yeah and you have the context of everything like watching them together in like the joyful moments when you know the ending and everything it has so much more weight where you talk about my previous criticisms on the last episode of hateful eight (laughs) and I think you brought it up on multiple episodes. Every episode. (laughs) Like, knowing... It's my go-to example of this style of filmmaking, which is, like, mildly popular with mysteries. I feel like you either have something like Mulholland Drive where or Fight Club where repeat viewings actually just further enhance everything that you watched, or you have the Hateful Eights or the incredibly loud and extremely close closes of the world (laughs) i don't think anybody's talking about that movie anymore besides you i hate that movie so much (laughs) but you have those that just really yeah misuse mystery and Uh, i would say it's very frustrating camp for me i'll have to rewatch it to see i could see that argument 
because I think whenever you're trying to lie to the audience, it's like one thing if a character is lying to themselves. And in that case, you can get away with it, which I think is what Mulholland Drive is, which is what Fight Club is. It's like the movie isn't necessarily trying to lie to the audience. It's more that the the character who is the perspective character of the film is lying to themselves. And that's what makes the repeat viewing so good because the film was being a bit more objective yeah, in how it was handling everything. But then Glass Onion, um, <laughs> what's the <laughs> Knives Out? Or Glass Onion and Knives Out Mystery. God. That movie also does the same thing where it's not the main character lying to themselves it's that the movie's actively lying to us and thinks it's clever in doing so and it's always so cheap i think the only time that it's ever worked for me in the history of cinema which is an exaggeration but the only time i can remember off the top of my head right now was oceans 11 yeah right and which they do in every one of those movies yeah, which they're just like, oh, you think they're caught, but little did you know, they actually did this thing that we just decided to not show you for no reason whatsoever. It's great, though. Like, the way, like, that movie has fun with the formula in that way. Yeah, and it's such a small part of it. It's not like the main thrust of the movie is them lying to us the whole time. It's just like, there's just one little small plot, like, part of the whole, like, grand plan that we didn't tell you about. And you're like, okay. Yeah, but it's not the bulk of the movie. We lied to you and like tricked you. Was it this fascinating? You're yeah, like, no, right. fuck off. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the, but see that you're describing why I don't like Saltburn and the way it handles it is like there can be a beauty to that. Like when we were talking about that movie, I theorized that like, oh, like it's a meta aspect of the movie that you know Oliver's lying to us and like testing how we perceive him but like i'm also kind of making that up like is there anything in the movie that really suggests that specific of a reading it's in the end it just feels like no really they were just like there's a bunch of lies and a bunch of things that were kept from me and any movie in the world can do that and play with that theory but the difference with mahal and drive is like it's a movie about movies (laughs) it's movies about stories and like the stories we invent it's such an integral part of the movie that nothing ever like everything connects like the less you know the more you're you'll end up understanding about things in a way like you don't need to know what's going on for the first four-fifths of the movie to feel the impact of everything like once you learn what the twist is and then upon repeat viewings and everything like watching saltburn repeat viewings won't enhance my understanding of this potential theme where like, am I supposed to trust him? Like, no, I I get it. And like, that's kind of the end of it, you know? Yeah. That's, I think my big critique of Saltburn would be like, I did get the shock value on initial viewing of being like, Oh, the liar. And (laughs) we did talk about the meta aspect of like, he's a grifter and Mm -hmm. we got grifted and it kind of embodies the fact of how many times do you follow somebody online or like a minor celebrity or something like an influencer or something right and you think you know them and then the story comes out about who they really are or how they really are or some behind the scenes thing you're just like oh my god <laughs> like i i thought I, I knew this man 
yeah, I thought I knew who this person was. I felt bad for them. I empathize with them. And they're actually just like a monstrous grifter. Um, yeah. So you do get the form and function of that. But I I would like to see a version of Saltburn where everything was like obvious from the beginning. Like we saw mm-hmm. him go about everything that he's doing and the way he was manipulating people. Because I feel like that movie would have more longevity than the version that we got. Yeah, it would at least give him some humanity to see like the way he grew up or what his situation was and why he feels the need to be grifting people. That I mean, that never even happens once you get the, the twist reveal. Yeah, yeah. It's just like I kind of wanted what you had. Okay. Yeah. God, we're just okay. talking more about sulfur. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i know exactly what you were hoping to do in the mulholland drive episode Absolutely. well so what's your favorite what's your favorite scene mm. in mulholland drive man i think the scenes that hit me the hardest are ones we've already talked about um which is the theater sequence and then the ending and how it slowly kind of falls further and further back into the dream sequence ending of silencio i just think that's incredible um why don't you go with any other favorite moments you have while i think about it uh yeah i feel like it's cliche but club silencio is incredible the last few minutes also get me i still love the twist of just seeing naomi watts and the difference between betty and diane yeah and the master class she puts on and the body language and uh, it's the body language. <laughs> like, it's yeah, just it's one of the it's best so performances different. ever. IMO. I, yeah, I absolutely agree. Like one thousand percent. And she did not get nominated for any awards, did oh, she? Oh yeah. Well, David Lynch movies never get anything. I know it's stupid. I think like the Elephant the Man Oscar was, was the only one really. The Oscars are pretty dumb. Yes, they are. <laughs> uh, <laughs> When's our Oscars episode? So, by the way oh yeah i guess uh the next one do we talk about the the nominees <laughs> i was kidding but we can yeah seems like a fun thing to do it's just gonna be me complaining but sure yeah it'll be both of us complaining oh, okay. a lot about that sounds fun a number of movies we'll have some positive things to say i'm sure but yeah i think the the one that's like maybe not the obvious pick is just uh betty's audition scene which yeah. again is just the greatness of Naomi Watts, but it's also one of those scenes where we talk about on the show, on the website, we talk about micro narratives and the power of individual scenes that have a beginning, middle and end. Yeah. And how illuminating, not even illuminating, how just powerful those can be and how dynamic they can be. And there are, scenes in this that do that or moments in this that do that very well like the assassin scene is a great uh, micro narrative the audition scene is a great micro narrative uh, the even the the cowboy the, scene not the cowboy i don't feel like that's much of a micro narrative it kind of is uh, was, like he learns about it then goes somewhere and like yeah i guess you're right though there's not much more to it than that it's more like setup, I guess, yeah, for yeah. something else. I was thinking about the hitman coming to his house and just like walking in, being like, "Where, where is he?" And then I like how you consider the, that a micro narrative. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to think like 
does that have like a beginning, middle, and end? Well, like, ha- yeah. well, the dumpster scene is a good one. Yeah, the dumpster scene is also a great, a great one of just like, hey, we're having this meeting. And by the way, I had a dream. <laughs> uh, two people you don't know talking about a dream some guy had. Yeah, I, which kind of sets up so much of the movie. Yeah, totally. Uh. So it's a great use of micro narratives throughout the film, which I guess ties back to one aspect that we did to talk about was that this was originally going to be a TV show mm-hmm. and it didn't get aired. It didn't get picked up. That was the thing. And I saw a lie that Naomi Watts was just like, great. I'm in the first David Lynch project to never see the light of day. Yeah. And uh, Lynch himself, instead of just abandoning it, came back and re like, edited the things that he had into a film and then they filmed the ending to make it a lot more final which i didn't see what part was actually filmed as the ending um i don't know if that's all the diane stuff that we get i would imagine or if it if it was just like the actual like very end with the people chasing her and her shooting herself yeah i feel like it probably is that i feel like it would be weird to only film the Betty stuff and then to be like, oh, I got to do this whole other storyline where I'm just Diane. Like, I feel like, I mean, I'm not an actor, so I can't get inside the head of Naomi Watts too much. But knowing the way you are on the other side of the dream can really inform how you act within the dream, you know? Like, there's such a night day difference between them that I feel like those energies had to have existed ahead of time. Oh, yeah. She said, uh, like, I'm looking at some of the the Wikipedia notes and it said... She found Betty too one-dimensional without the darker portion of the film that was put together afterward. Oh, wow. Most of the new scenes were filmed in October 2000. Yeah. I mean, it's also not surprising to me that the whole movie just, like, originally David Lynch just had it existing in a fantasy because so much of his movies already do that. Um, Literally, almost everyone. Like, Eraserhead is about this guy dreaming of a life beyond, like, his you know, working at a factory and having a kid with a woman, this like monster baby that they have together. Blue Velvet's all about the American dream and like how you saw the world and what you thought your life should have been versus like it's the seedy underbelly. Wow, that hearts. Somebody like these two kids are trying to act like Elvis, you know, like they're trying to live a rock star life, but like, and there literally is a, a wicked wish of the West in the movie. So like Wizard of Oz becomes part of the movie. Like, it's, he just constantly does that. So it's not surprising to me that a whole TV show could have just existed in this fake world, you know? And it could have been really exaggerated and, and one note in a sense. Yes. Yeah. Um, I found uh, the interview that she gave with, what was it? Interview Magazine? That's <laughs> appropriate. Um, but they said... How did your character Mulholland Drive evolve between the ABC TV pilots and then the movie version? And Naomi Watts said, in the most brilliant way possible, I saw the pilot and I was really unhappy with it because a lot of Betty was lost. In the beginning, you think she's a one-dimensional character who should be on the side of a cereal box. She's got stars in her eyes, dimples in her cheeks, a bounce in her step. You want to slap her, but the paying (laughs) off of the character was gone from the pilot. It was sabotaged. And the interviewer says, but then Lynch turned it into a movie with an expanded script. So it seems like there was going to be the payoff. It just wasn't in the pilot. And she said, yes, and I got 18 more pages. 
Um, and the interviewer says, and we saw Betty is actually someone else, Diane. By the same token, the amnesic Rita, who Betty befriends, is also someone else, Camilla. And Naomi Watts says, everyone's got a different interpretation of it, but I had to make something up for myself so I could make some solid, coherent choices. I thought Diane was the real character and that Betty was the person she wanted to be in a dreamed up. Rita's the damsel in distress, and she's in absolute need of Betty, and Betty controls her life as if she were a doll. Um, Rita is Betty's fantasy of who she wants Camilla to be. In the end, though, all the characters are little conduits of David and what's going on in his stream of consciousness. <laughs> totally. That, that's the answer to yeah. every David Lynch movie. Yeah, 1,000%. Yeah, th- and that's one thing I really I love about him, especially as he gets older and starts to give less of a shit. Like, famously, you know, after he made Eraserhead, which was such a passion project that he spent six years making and all of his own money and, like, the work of basically like a dozen people, you know, like putting together like all of the crazy sets and special effects in that movie. The score was really a laborious process. Like he put his everything into that. And then to do the elephant man and Dune movies, he felt were kind of taken away from him. He really had a grudge against Hollywood and like studios and control and notably would like, would not compromise anything he did after that. Um, and yep. he just gives less and less of a shit as his career goes on, <laughs> leading up to Mulholland Drive, which is, you know, while it's you can ultimately understand it, but it is pretty obtuse in a way. Like, you got to take time to get it and, like, understand it. Um, and then Endless Empire is just completely incoherent to a lot of people. Um, although I think I can explain it. Go visit the article at filmcolossus.com. Um, <laughs> but it, it's... Um, that's what I love I was kind of watching this time realizing about the beginning like you were mentioning how there are parts of the first hour and a half that aren't the most compelling and I almost think there's a couple of different explanations for that because I know what you mean and agree in a sense that like if someone doesn't like Mulholland Drive and can't get into the first part of the movie like I kind of get it there are a lot of really slapsticky moments and the editing's a little like um blockheaded like scenes are just kind of stitched together that don't really flow together almost there'll be like upbeat music in one and then like chilling like mysterious music in the next it it kind of has a weird rhythm to it but it's almost done purposely i think because it is a movie being put together in someone's head it's kind of amateur in that way but also it has like rhythms of 50s shows that lynch has always been obsessed with he's always had like this sort of 50s humor in his movie and the way people see like golly and stuff you know he always has that kind of stuff so i i just i view the beginning of the movie as just like that that it's just david lynch kind of like getting loose with all of the cliches and kind of simpler parts of hollywood stories like you you mentioned earlier that a lot of the parts of the beginning of Mulholland Drive feel like they've been copied in other things since and I think there's a reason for that like it's everything's a little simple and plain like Adam's whole story and like you know like the mob people coming after him and like him going home and like the whole we get a whole scene where he finds his wife cheating on him and like again very a lot of like slapsticky like strange humor uh it's just so David Lynch like all of it and (laughs) I just like 
I just get a kick out of it more and more as I watch that beginning part and like how little of a shit he gives about people like liking it, I guess. <laughs> like it's just, it's purely done in the style of the movie and like we're in this woman's head and this is what she's imagining. And it's kind of having fun with it in a way, but also being very serious with it in terms of like it's humanistic observations. It's just, uh, I don't know. I just grow to love the beginning more and more as I watch this movie. I can see that. It definitely has the most like, I mean, it is the bulk of the movie. <laughs> yeah. So diving into it, the tone of it, some of the shots of just like the car going up the hill uh-huh. are so mesmerizing and so cool because I feel like it made me aware of the fact that you don't see a lot of movies that are just like a lot of darkness, like a lot of natural darkness and just a camera following a car up a hill in just natural (laughs) like darkness and making the most out of the, the lighting that you do have. There was something very noirish noirish about it. It's a neo-noir. So yeah, that was really, cool to me and unlike most of the other shots in the entire film there was just something very dreamy about it very color palette of like traditional noir when most of the rest of the movie isn't yeah totally yeah i love that it's i mean noir definitely has a huge influence on this movie like in between the scenes where the hitman is it's a farce and he's accidentally shooting like this woman and goes through this whole day and there or Adam coming home to find his wife cheating on him. Like in between all that or all the film noir moments, like everything Betty and Rita are doing is it's direct film noir plot basically. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, they're sleuthing. They're yeah. sleuthing it up. And so, like, you know, true. Diane like toys of becoming a femme fatale. And then you realize like in real life, she thinks Camille is a femme, the femme fatale figure. It's, it's all film noir stuff. Yeah. It, oh God. Real life. The, the proposal and just Naomi Watts breaking down at the dinner. I actually did not wonder, the proposal, but the announcement. Yeah. I, I wondered this time, like I always assumed it was like them announcing their engagement, because I wondered if like maybe they were having a kid or something. Yeah, it could be either one, but it's at least something that shows like she's committing to him in a major way. Yes. And the fact that they don't, you don't hear what it is. I just love that decision. <laughs> they're just laughing like it's uh, such a ridiculous moment and again a moment where i could see like someone watching it and be like this is stupid but i love it <laughs> uh what a movie okay quite a movie um so let's rank this baby yeah um chris are you going to be ranking it ranking it you're not ranking uh, no i'm 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 categorizing. That's right. I'm ranking based on category rather than. Uh, <laughs> but you're still going to give numbers. us a movie sandwich, correct? Yes, okay. we're still going to give it a movie sandwich. Okay, so Chris is not going to be ranking them because I think it's driving him nuts to rank hundreds of movies. <laughs> but I like doing it, so I've ranked mine. <laughs> yeah. So. I, I still have mine like ranked in terms of like what category it falls yeah, in and which the I do as well. Categories yeah, obviously have like rankings. So favorites, wow, impressive, essentially ten to one, yeah. right? Um so I have Mulholland Drive in the impressive category, which is 
below my favorites in WoW. So up there, but I uh, I think prior to this watch, I would have put it in the WoW section, but I kept it down in impressive for now because in some ways it did feel maybe a little long yeah at times and some scenes that i remember being a little more developed weren't as developed or some of the plot points i thought were a little more developed weren't as developed so i i ended up like still really appreciating it but a little like less like gung-ho about it so Mm. it actually fell down just like a a tier in the rankings but it's still in great company like in terms of the sandwich of things that it falls in um it's joined it's joined by uh movies like mad god okay and teenage mutant ninja turtles mutant mayhem (laughs) that is a juicy sandwich Um, Where it actually it? rose up in my rankings if that was even thought to be possible. Uh, previously, I had it at number four because I kind of always considered Enter the Void, Showgirls, and Magnolia were like the three that came in, in very important moments in my life. And they were the kinds of movies that hit immediately, you know? Um, and that's why they've always been at the top. Like they felt. They just felt momentous in that way that like, oh, like I remember the moment of my life when I saw this and I remember what it did for me. Whereas Mahone Drive is like, it's been a constant, like it's been something I've had to slowly learn to love. Um, But this viewing, I kind of, it transcended that a little bit and became like the ultimate movie in a sense of like, oh, like this is the movie I've lived with the most and spent the most time with and is kind of become part of my life slowly but surely in that way um so i rose it up from number four to number two so it's now at number two whoa so what's the what's the sandwich there all right so on top we got a nice like multi-grain sourdough of enter the void um then maholan drive is like it's it's a nice respectable cheddar um And then Showgirls is the the turkey, Magnolia is the ham, and then Spirited Away is the the bottom layer. <laughs> that's a that's a mighty five. Yeah, it's delicious. <laughs> it's a solid sandwich. As a former sandwich artist, of course, it's a solid sandwich. How how many years did you spend as a sandwich artist? By the way, I. Uh, it was or less than a year. So I started I started 2004, summer of 2004. I think it was um I don't think it was 2003. I thought I only did it my junior year of high school and oh yeah, so it would have been 2003. Um so like junior year of high school uh into my like summer heading into college. Okay. So like 03 to the start of 05, a okay. year and a half, pretty much. So about a, and then, like, a, like an 18th of your life. <laughs> well, then when I studied abroad in Australia, I worked at Subway oh. for the three months I was in Australia. Wow. And then when I moved back to Australia, 
I worked at the same subway for the first like three months that I was back there. Wow. So we're we're talking like probably a fourteenth of your life. Uh one one thirteenth. Wow, one thirteenth of your life. How do you feel about that? Oh no, wait, one eighteenth. Uh <laughs> I'm not 26 years old. And, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I'm glad it wasn't more. That's yeah. <laughs> I'm glad it wasn't more. So this is my follow-up question. If you ever win an Oscar, in your Oscar speech, are you going to thank Subway for your start as an artist? Uh, yeah, I think I have to, right? Okay, I have to I'm be just like, making sure. My, yeah. my artistic journey would not be possible without <laughs> without Subway showing me the way. Yeah. So just just making sure. Yeah. No, no. If they want to sponsor the show, I mean, Subway probably won't even exist by the time I'm giving my Oscar you think speech. So? I think I read somewhere that Subway, I, it was like, or maybe, were you and I both looking at this? I don't remember, but it was like a list of the most fast food restaurants in the world, and Subway, I think, is number one. I knew that it was, but they've started closing up a lot of shops oh really yeah i think the contraction is starting to be real there was a bunch of stories that came out a couple of years ago uh john oliver did one yeah, that's right about how subway was really unfair to its uh franchisers yeah franchisees and i think chipotle took a huge part of the market share from subway of being like the right. go-to place to eat if you were somebody that was Build like health something. conscious but wanted to eat something from somewhere quickly right so it's it used to be you know you go to the gym and then you go to subway if you just wanted something quick now it's you go to chipotle yeah chipotle is like healthier it's more natural ingredients all of that um they use real fish <laughs> they use real fish uh so subway i think has fallen out of favor in that and then the prices jumped extraordinarily then their menus also crazy complicated now and jersey mike's also seems to be eating the rest of subway's lunch chris i think you could host a subway podcast you know i think i could what would i call it six inches or more (laughs) yes that's it yes good stuff it's a great it's a great title so yeah i i know uh because they were all over australia but them and kfc yeah kfc's everywhere i um you know I what follow- they say kentucky the most popular state in america <laughs> Uh, do you follow on youtube do you follow this guy i think it's is it japan eats do you know this guy no okay i thought maybe you'd be interested in it he just like he lives in japan and he he'll talk about kfc and the kinds of stuff they have at kfc and it's hilarious (laughs) i did when i was in japan eat at a a wendy's that was there oh yeah because it just was so strange to me that there was like what would japanese wendy's be like i Look, when I go to Japan someday, I definitely want to eat like local cuisine and I will spend a lot of time doing that. But I do, as somebody who doesn't eat fast food or really like, I don't know if I like any fast food place, I do kind of want to go to fast food places and like try one of the weird things they have in the menu that I can't get in America. 
Yeah. Like I, I think I Wendy's, really want to find out. Wendy, Wendy's will satisfy that. Subway, it was like all the same stuff. There was mm-hmm. nothing different at Australian Subway than they had. Um, They're not innovating. They had like a a Rada sauce that I don't think you could get Rada. in America. Is that what it is? Um, Are you making up words? Am I? I might just not be saying it right. Um, it's uh like an Indian sauce. R A I T A. I've never heard of that. But yeah, they had that as like you know one of the sauces that you could put on the sub uh, sandwich. Okay, then I'll go. Yeah. So there you go. If that subway even still exists. If uh, anybody from the Coogee Beach subway yeah, listens up, to this episode. Hit up Chris and you'll be the next guest on uh, Six Inches or More. <laughs> it's permanently closed. Oh. No. Well, you could still find one of the employees. Yeah. But yeah. I can't go. Oh, so. man. The Google reviews are harsh. <laughs> For this place that Chris has confirmed is like every other subway in the world. So the most horrid customer service I've ever had. <laughs> the woman behind the counter was terrible. I'm wondering if there are any like Google reviews from when I worked there. I have I actually have one specific very fond memory of great customer service that I got at um a subway because I at the time no, I wasn't a vegetarian at the time, but for, for whatever reason for a while at Subway my go-to sandwich was the veggie sandwich. Just like every vegetable I could get on there with the, um, it's like a sweet vinaigrette sauce they have. What was it called? Um, yeah. And I was just like, that was my go-to. And the woman was like, do you want me to change my gloves? Cause she thought maybe I might've been vegan and like the gloves had been touching meat or whatever. And I was like, no, you don't have to do that. And what a lovely thing to ask. <laughs> That's nice. Yeah. That's nice. I don't know why I remember that. I uh, I got a job offer because my customer service there was so good. Wow. Yeah, this uh this woman had come in a few times for sandwiches and she was just like, "You're very charming." And I was like, "Well, thank you. Mm-hmm. You are nice as well." She's like, "I work for the Royal Sydney Golf Club. Would you like uh would you like to interview for a position there?" Wow. Did you do it? I did. Did you and, get it? Uh, I did, <laughs> and it's Twist. the only job I've ever. It's the only job I've ever been fired from. <laughs> and you went back I, to uh, No, I did not return. I uh, I got another job at the University of New South Wales in their study abroad departments, hmm. which was only like a month and a half, and then I got a job at Berkeley Books. Uh, a bookstore chain in Australia. <laughs> but yeah, that job marked the end of my time at Subway, but I only had two shifts. I was working as like a waiter for the golf club course. And being a waiter is so much harder than being a sandwich she artist. wanted you to interview to be a waiter? Yeah, uh, I didn't know what it was for. I just showed up and I was like, you know, Monica told me to come for an interview. And they're like, oh yeah, you're going to be part of the, like the wait staff. So my my test, I had a test shift where I had to put on a uniform and just go. And it was the lady president of the golf club 
had a little like group that she would meet with for lunch. And this was the most expensive golf club, I think, in Australia. So it was where all these like old money people who lived in Sydney went. I think Hugh Jackman was probably huh. like a member of this golf club. It's like that level of like the who's who in Australia. Uh-huh. So the president, like the lady president of the golf club was golfing with her cohorts and was going to come in for lunch afterwards. And we had me and like a couple other people were part of the like, the service for this. I had to stand at the door for an hour and a half holding a tray of cocktails for whenever the women finished their round of golf. And that that was it. I just had to stand there for an hour and a half. I couldn't set the tray down. It was so at Subway I was making eighteen fifty an hour and this was gonna be twenty six fifty an hour. And then on Saturdays you got like time and a half, and I think on Sundays you got double time. So the money could have been like relative to what I like yeah. was making pretty insane, like $50 an hour. Yeah. Um, but having to stand there for an hour and a half holding a tray of cocktails that they'd occasionally take away from me and replace with a new tray of cocktails because the ice had melted. Yeah. Was nonsense. Stupid. And then I had to stand in the corner of the room as the women ate and I could hear their whole conversation, and it was such like a a bitchy, like <laughs> condescending, like they were just tearing apart. They were talking about membership opportunities and the people who were applying for membership, and they were judging all of the people who were applying for membership and being like, "Well, they're not good enough. I don't like their kids." Like that kind of yeah, right. That kind of conversation where you're just like. These are horrendous, horrendous people. And then they had these huge chairs and I was supposed to reach around to grab their plates and put down their food. But the chairs were gigantic and I'm not tall. I have little T-Rex arms. Mm -hmm. So I'm having to say, excuse me. And they're glaring at me for speaking. So that was my first shift. And then they uh, (laughs) I had to work a banquet. Like two nights later, there was like the opening banquet for the golf season or for the the golf club for the year. And that was just a nightmare. The head chef was just like holding court in the kitchen. You could tell he was like such a diva, very douchey. He was talking about like the new set of golf clubs he was getting and the new Porsche he was getting and then yelling at people for all of their food plating and just exactly what you'd expect from a chef but without any of the charm <laughs> just pure ugh. see these and, are the uh, details I, we get into in six inches or more yeah this is i should just save it this was a good tease so for that show i dropped this. a salt i dropped a salt shaker on a man <laughs> that's the most beautiful sentence i've ever heard i dropped a salt shaker on a man <laughs> yeah please fit that I in one the, of your novels I had the confounding moment of I had to walk around the pre-party with two like pitchers of beer, uh, light and dark. And uh, a guy came up to me and was like, dark beer. And he goes, no head. I want no head. And th- he meant foam. Yeah. You know, he wanted no foam on the on the beer, which, you know, if you're pouring a dark beer, hard to do. Yeah. So I had to 
like tilt the glass almost sideways and pour into it very slowly to limit the amount of foam. And I'm maybe like 10 seconds into this and he looks at me and goes, can you go any slower? I was like, well, do you want to no foam? Do you want no foam or do you want a quick pour? What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? Wow. Give me a tip. Yeah, get out of there, Chris. I know. So join us for the rest of the tales like this on six inches or more. <laughs> All right. What's the next movie we're covering? Uh, Oscar season, I guess. Oh, we're just going to do Oscar season. Okay. So we're going to wait on announcing the movie after that. So we'll do Oscars first. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. Okay. I hope that's enjoyable. <laughs> for anybody i'm just i'm just always annoyed at the oscars i in general yeah. i don't like awards so that'll be an interesting podcast somebody who's disinterested in award season to be talking about the biggest one but okay yeah i mean for the curmud- curmudgeons out there it'll be a show for them <laughs> yeah, there you go <laughs> all right let's wrap this up all right are you ready I'm ready. I need a clear signal that you are ready for this. I am ready for this. Okay. Because it's happening. Okay. Right now. Okay. Okay. And you're not going to get a second try. There's not going to be like more movie after Diane. Wait, no, this is it. This is the end. Silencio. I get it. Okay. Lights. Camera. See ya. See ya. <laughs> what was that? See, it, it's Chris. On my end, we said it the exact same time. okay now i know you're fucking with me because we're not on skype right now we're on our phones i know you're right but but i'm still on my internet so what because i am connected to the internet currently on your phone yeah it's working on my phone suddenly there was a lot of internet issues before the package (laughs) okay all right silencio silencio